why you've come this morning. Uh, be very interesting to know if you come because this is what you do on a Sunday morning. You've come to visit your friends. Uh, whatever it is, I hope you've come hungry. Hungry for God and hungry for the words because we're going to be doing some work this morning. Uh, the first commentary I looked at on this passage that we're looking at this morning said, this is the most difficult chapter in Galatians. The second said, preachers choose this passage at their peril. And I thought, well, that's a great encouragement to start, isn't it? Why me? Why did I get landed with this one? And I found out later on there was a connection. So today we're looking at Galatians 4, 8 to 31. And by now you've probably had enough of the Judaizers and law. You're probably sick to death of somebody standing up and saying, it's all about circumcision and law and how we're free from that. And what we want to do is we want to get on to the good stuff of chapters five and six, because that's the fruit of the spirit, freedom in Christ, the new creation. But you can't have chapters five and six without chapter four. And remember, this is a letter, so there weren't any chapters anyway. Um, but the opening verse of chapter five is, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's the conclusion of chapter four. Chapter four is actually the turning point in Galatians, where some, a whole new perspective opens up. And to be honest, Paul has had enough of the Galatians and or the Judaizers. He spent the whole of chapter three arguing his case, why they were wrong to want to introduce the law. And I want you at the moment to imagine yourselves as the Galatians and you're hearing this letter for the first time, all right? By now, you're a little bit embarrassed and squirming in your seats, have a good squirm, all right? Because you've been put in a bad place. So he has a bit of a rant at them. So I'm Paul and you're the Galatians. So we're gonna just, I'm just this is my take on the first bit of the passage that, we have, that we're looking at. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods who didn't even exist. But now that you knew, know God, or rather God knows you because you, nobody can know God intimately, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you want to be enslaved by them all over again? Quite frankly, you're trying to please God by what you do and what you don't do. I fear for you that my hard work for you has been in vain. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, you, 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 put yourself in my place. I became like you Gentiles and became free of the law. You didn't mistreat me when I first met you. As you know, it was because of an illness that the, I preached the gospel to you. And even though my sickness was quite frankly revolting to you, you didn't reject me or turn me away. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God or even Jesus Christ himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I know you would have gladly torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those false teachers who want to win you over aren't doing it for your good, you know. They're trying to turn you away from me so that you'll listen to them. It's fine for you to be enthusiastic about doing good, especially when I'm not with you. My dears, it feels as though I'm going through childbirth until Christ is fully developed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone. 
How I wish that. Because quite frankly, I don't know what else to do. So there. Huh. Right. Paul's rant is over. He's had his go, all right? And he decides then he's had enough of the arguments. So he says, you know what? I'm going to tell you a story. It's story time. And he uses the word, the word he uses is allegorio. I'm going to tell you a story, he says. So here we need to understand what that means before we go into the story that he tells, okay? So a little language lesson. Jesus generally taught in parables, stories, okay? And a parable is a story with a single meaning. You're not supposed to take the little bits out and make them mean something. The whole is the story. So we have the story of the lost treasure. You go out and you sell everything to get the lost treasure. If something's worth having, it's worth giving everything for it. All right? We don't take it to bits. But there's one parable that Jesus turns into an allegory because an allegory is a story in which the characters and events represent specific things. They're made to represent something, all right? So the story is turned into something else. And the, the example of that from Jesus is when he set, tells the parable of the sower. So he tells the disciples the parable. And then later on, he takes them apart and he turns it into an allegory because he says, the seed that falls on the good ground means this. The th thistles and the weeds mean this. He takes each element of the story and makes it mean something else. Now, it's okay for Jesus to turn a parable into an allegory. We can't do it. The rest of the parables, as far as we know, are parables, one story. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you a real story from the Old Testament, and I'm going to turn it into an allegory, a story where all the characters mean something else. Are you with me? Okay, good. <clears throat> and Paul chooses the story of Abraham but he actually doesn't tell the whole story. He says, I'm going to tell you a story, and then he doesn't. Because his readers, his listeners, know the Old Testament back to front. In fact, they probably memorised it. It's the only scripture they've got at this stage. They know the story behind the story. They can read between the lines. We, as Westerners, tend to read the text and analyse it. Anybody from a Jewish or Middle Eastern background would know the other unspoken things that are in the story, the story behind the story, the inferences that are there, because it's part of their culture, because the Bible is written within a Middle Eastern culture, and that means something. And one more thing before we go into the story and its meaning and how it leads to chapter five, all right? So we've done allegory. He's going to tell us an allegory, all right? And he's going to tell us the story of Abraham. But we need to understand one more word before that, and that's the word covenant, okay? Because the crucial thing about the Abraham story is that God makes a covenant with Abraham, okay? Now, a covenant is a binding agreement between two people, between two parties. When we lived in our old house in Leicestershire, it had a covenant on it, and that meant that the council said, we'll do this, but you've got to do that. So there were two parties that had a, a binding agreement, and we would have taken a lot to get that covenant broken. The co covenant that many of us will enter into, the sacred covenant, is that of marriage. Marriage is a sacred covenant where two people agree before God to contract 
to be together for life, it, but it's an equal agreement between two parties. Okay? God's covenant is somewhat different. It's not two equal parties. God sets the terms and we agree to them. Um, it assumes our obedience. We abide the terms out of love. God says, this is how it is. And we say, yes, Lord, I agree, because there's a promise that God makes that we agree to. Now, note that God's promises are conditional. We often say, don't we, God loves us unconditionally. Yes, that's true. But to experience his love, there are certain conditions, aren't there? If we want to bear much fruit, what do we have to do? Abide in him. If we love him, what will we do? Obey his commandments. There are all sorts of ifs and the agreements that God enters into. So if you, we, so the covenant is the covenant arrangement. Now in the Bible, again, keeping on covenant, there are five biblical covenants. Well, depending who you talk to, there are five, seven, eight, we're doing five this morning, all right? Uh, you can talk to Matthew if you want to know what the others might be. So there are five biblical covenants, okay? The covenant with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant. Now, all of these covenants, except that that was made with Noah after the flood, were sealed with a sacrifice, okay? God commits himself to a promise, and the human element, the individual, the nation, commits to obey and honor the agreement. So we've got the five covenants, and this one, because it's the story of Abraham, we're looking at the covenant, the agreement that was made with Abraham. So here's the story. Because he doesn't actually tell the story, we're going to do story time, okay? So it starts off with this, the covenant with Abraham. This is what God says to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that's the start of the covenant with Abraham. It's that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. And it's repeated then in chapter 13 and made a little bit more specific. God says, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Offspring, okay? First time we hear the word offspring. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. So the, the family of Abraham that comes on, God's making a promise with, okay? And then the last one, God says, he makes it really specific, your very own son shall be your heir. Here's the promise of the son. And he brought Abraham outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring bring, be. And Abraham believed the Lord and God counted to him as righteousness. This is Abraham and faith, all right? So he's promised a son. Now, what we know is this is going to be dynamic. I don't know how you guys are going to manage because I'm going to use the flip chart. But if you want to sit on the front row, do, okay? I can't bear. Oh, okay. This is going to be interesting. Have we got any flip chart paper that works? Towards the back. 
How far towards the back, Andy? Ah! Great, okay. okay. Right, so we're going to look, because I'm, I like being active, all right? We're going to look at the, at the allegory. And first of all, we look at the people. So here we have Sarah, okay? Sarah is Abraham's wife, and she is the free woman, okay? So God calls Abraham, and he's promised that a son will be his. And he's confirmed the covenant with a sacrifice, all right? He says to Abraham, bring me a heifer, a ram, a dove, and pigeon. And Abraham took them and killed them. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. A smoking fire and a flaming torch passed between the halves of the carcasses. On that day, the Lord made the covenant with Abraham. So we had the sacrifice, all right? We've had the promise. We've had the sacrifice. Fast forward now to chapter 16 of, of, of Genesis, all right? Sarah remains childless. We know that Abraham by now is about 76, which means that Sarah's 66. And... Uh, God's plan isn't working. So Abraham and Sarah think God needs a little bit of help here. We'll see what we can do to help him. Have you ever done that? Been in a situation where God's promised something and you've tried to tweak it? I know how I have in my family. I can think of a particular, I'm not going to specify it because I've got family in the congregation. But <laughs> a situation where I wanted something to happen and God had promised. And I would do little things to tweak it here, here and here. And then God said to me, when are you going to take your fingers out of this pie and leave it to me? And I thought, okay, Lord, and from then on, you know, things happened that I couldn't possibly have, have organised or managed. Anyway, Sarah and Abraham think they need to give God a little help. So Sarah goes to Abraham and she says, why don't you sleep with my maid Hagar? Now, this is not the solution that I would have suggested to Brian had we been in the same circumstances, but different times, different circumstances. So we have Hagar, who is the slave woman. And Sarah says, why don't you go and sleep with her and then we can get a son? And Abraham says, well, all right then. Well, we don't know quite how he said it, but he goes and he sleeps with Hagar. And sure enough, a child is born and he's called Ishmael. Okay. Now he is indeed Abraham's child. but he is not the heir. He is, as the Bible says, the child of the flesh. Born by human design, because Sarah and Abraham decided that he should be born. He is a slave. He is born to slave. He is born into slavery. Okay? So that's the first one. And God says, no, no, this is the child of the flesh. This is not the child of the promise. He's going to be a slave. And Hagar starts throwing her weight about, probably because she's pregnant, but for other reasons, and eventually makes Sarah quite jealous. And there's no way this is going to end well. This is not going to end well. So fast forward a few years to chapter 17. By now, Abraham is um, probably around 89, um, and Sarah is 79. And there's no way this child is going to be born. And actually, that's God's entire point. This is the child of the promise. God's going to make sure they know that he's given them this child. 
All right. So the, uh, a visitor comes to Abraham and says, you're going to have a son. And, and Abraham goes, ha oh, ha, yes. A little bit later, two visitors come, probably angels. And Sarah's listening outside the tent. They say, this time next year, you'll have a child. Ha ha, goes Sarah. That's likely, isn't it? But what happens next year? A child is born. Isaac, whose name is Laughter. Rather a strange child name for a child, isn't it? Hello, laughter this morning. What would you like for breakfast? You know, it doesn't kind of roll off the tongue, does it? But this is the son, the heir of the father. This is the child of the promise. This child is born to be free. Okay, because he's the child that God sends. Now, come back to Galatians, all right? Paul said, here's the thing. Hagar produces the child of the flesh, the biological child, the one that's born into slavery. Sarah pr produces the son and heir, the child of the promise, the free child. And what Paul is saying here is these Judaizers, they're very proud that they're the children of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. Do you remember them saying to John the Baptist, we are the children of Abraham, and John the Baptist says, you're nothing like Abraham. You've got no faith. And then they say to Jesus, we're the children of Abraham. What does Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. So take that. All right? And Paul rounds on these people, and he says... It's not about who your father is. Light bulb moment. It's about your, oh dear, where's it gone? It's not about your mother, your father, it's about your mother. Who's your mother? Is your mother Hagar or is it Sarah? Light bulb moment for me. This is why I've been given this passage because I'm the only mother on the preaching team. No, actually it had nothing to do with that. But it's about where do you trace yourself? Paul says, what do you want to be, Ugalay? Do you want to be children of the flesh or children of the promise? Do you want to be slave or do you want to be free? Are you under law or under grace? Who is your mother? I'm sorry, I thought we had a... Yeah, okay. A child born to slavery, a child born to freedom, a child of the flesh or a child of the promise, a creation of God or an heir of God. Who is your mother? Who do you want to be? I know who I want to be. I know who I want to be. Now we're coming to the figurative bit, the allegory. And you might want to get your Bibles open for this because um, how can I get that down a bit, guys, so we can read the beginning of it? Oh, there we go. Marvellous, isn't it? Okay, so we've got the story straight, right? With the stories of the two women and the two children who are born in different circumstances. Okay, are we with it? Am I speaking too far? I speak like an express train. I know I do. But anyway, okay, right? Now, what the Bible says, what Paul says here, is that these two women represent something. So first of all, he summarizes in verses 21 to 23 the story I've just told, all right? Tell me you who want to be under the law, you lot, and are not aware of what the law says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons one by the slave woman 
and one by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but the son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. Okay, that's the summary of the story we've just had. And he then says, these things are to be taken figuratively. All right, here's the allegory. The women represent two covenants. Remember, covenant, agreement, divine agreement between God and us. One covenant, oh dear, one covenant, I love working in different colours. Um, one covenant is the, is, represents Mount Sinai. Okay. One covenant is Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves because Mount Sinai is about the law. And we are, if, we, if we're under law, we're in slavery to the law because we've just got to keep keeping it. We've got to keep doing what it says. Okay? And we can never do that because we're not good enough. Hence the sacrificial system of Leviticus. Okay? Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Why does he put that bit in? Corresponds to the current Jerusalem. Because the current Jerusalem is where the Judaizers have stuck themselves. Still under law. We've still got the temple. We've still got law that you've got to keep. Okay? Because she is in slavery with her children. Keep coming back to this slavery, slavery to the law. But the Jerusalem that is above, Sarah, is free. So Sarah stands for the new Jerusalem. And then he, and she is our mother, for it's written. Comes another bit, okay. <laughs> Take a big breath. Because now he quotes a verse from Isaiah. Okay, have we got that up there? Nope. Let's go on a bit further if you haven't got a Bible in front of you. Okay, so now he quotes a verse from Isaiah. Okay. Be glad, barren woman. Remember, Sarah's been barren. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, these words in Isaiah are written to the Jews in exile. And that's the promise of the restored Jerusalem. They've been taken away from their land. They're going to be taken back to a restored Jerusalem. But, so the Isaiah passage is restored Jerusalem. Okay. But Paul takes it a stage further and refers it as the new Jerusalem. Now, this is the point at which Galatians makes the big switch. We've called this morning freedom from sin, but actually we've still been talking about freedom from law, haven't we? Right? This, what do we know about the new Jerusalem from Revelation? It's a place where there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, because we're free from sin. This is where Paul makes the great saying in, in Galatians from freedom from law, which we're all thinking... Oh, yeah, to actually freedom from sin. We've been set free from sin. Are you not excited about that? Some of you are looking as though this is kind of the worst news you've had in years. But Paul is saying, hey, listen up, people. I'm not just saying to you, you're free from law. I'm saying to you, you are free from sin. This is, and why? Oh. 
so that's the kind of the seig, the turn of it. Sarah represents the new Jerusalem, which is even further than the restored Jerusalem that Isaiah was looking forward to. She's looking for, he's looking forward to something much, much greater. This is grace. And he says, now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of the promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the spirit. And it's the same now. He says, if you're children of the promise, you are going to be persecuted. Because that's part of your inheritance as children of the promise. Get rid of the slave woman, he says, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Isn't that great? And Paul actually doesn't tell the rest of the story. But again, we need to realise that there is within these believers' minds something else. Because Ishmael is sent away into the desert as a slave. He goes into the desert as a slave. The descendants of Isaac, psh, running out of space, go to Egypt, but they come out of slavery and into the promised land via the desert experience. Okay? So they're going to come out into the promised land. And how does that happen? To understand that, we have to remember the other story that these people will know comes after Genesis 17, that's Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, okay? Because God tells Abraham to take this precious child, this precious one known as, and to sacrifice him. And so Abraham takes Isaac, takes the stuff for the sacrifice, goes into the wilderness, and Isaac said, says, Father, where's the lamb for sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. And he gets ready. He straps Isaac to, the, to, the, to, the, to this altar. And just as he's raising his hand, God says, stop. I know that you love me because you haven't withheld your only son from me. Go and get the lamb from the thicket. And, God said, and Abraham calls that place, God will provide. And Paul, that, Paul knows that's in their mind. And that is foreshadowing a father who will not withhold his only son, but will send him and allow him to be crucified for the sins of the world, that the nations of the world might be blessed through him, as the promise was that the nations would be blessed through Isaac. Here... Here is grace. Here is freedom. Here is the inheritance. And why? What did we look at? The five covenants. Because this is the new covenant. He saved from the old covenant made with Abraham that the world would be blessed through Isaac. And he's saying there's a new covenant that transcends that because we're not just about freedom from law. We're about freedom from sin. And what does Jesus say? He takes the bread... And he breaks it before them. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And then afterwards, 
he took, he took a cup and he gave thanks. And he said to them, drink from it, all of you, because this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We celebrate a new covenant. Now, the words that Jesus uses here will be familiar to his readers, but they're not actually from the Passover meal that he uses here. The words he uses are from an engagement party. Okay. Now, when a bridegroom, prospective bridegroom, wanted a bride, he would go to the father's house of the bride. He would go with his father to the bride's house. The bride would not be in the room, but he would then negotiate a bride price with the father. When they had settled the bride price, the prospective bride would be taken back in and the groom, the bridegroom, the to-be, would take the cup of the covenant which he's made with her father, which seals the bride price, and he would offer it to her and she would drink it and the covenant would be sealed. And then he goes home to his father's house to prepare rooms for us. Because you didn't have a little three-bedroom semi of your own in those days. You built some rooms on the end of your father's house. So he goes home to prepare rooms for her. When the rooms are ready, he comes back to claim his bride and take her to rooms in the father's house. Friends, this... This is the bridal feast of Christ. This is Christ and his church that we celebrate here. The bridal feast where God, and we know that Christ has gone to prepare rooms for us, that he will take us to his father's house. And this cup celebrates what the bride price is. And the bride price is the death of Christ, is Christ giving his life for us, that we might be not just free from law, but free from sin and its power over us. I am just bowled over by that. That whole picture that Paul brings, it seems a very abstruse picture, but Paul has brought this to us, that we have a new covenant that we celebrate, not just the covenant that was made with Abraham, not just the covenant that was made with Moses, but the covenant made in Jesus' blood. And we're going to celebrate this together. In a moment, Ali's going to come and help me. A covenant is sacred. This is a sacred feast that we celebrate. We are standing on holy ground as we take this. And there's something that's often done in the Bible when you're on holy ground. You take off your shoes. We can stand in the presence of God. We should be groveling on our knees. But because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we stand before our holy heavenly father. Mm -hmm.